What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. Michelle Warner, a stunning mother of two, had been missing for 13 days, and I was on my way to interview the last man who reportedly had seen her alive. Those who knew her were already saying a lot about Mark Castellano in the press, and not much of it was good. Some of her friends had even referred to him as being psychotic. He had already been initially questioned by police and had offered them no clues as to where the mother of his son might be. But Mark didn't want to talk to the police. He wanted to talk exclusively to me. He wanted to set the record straight on what really happened, to clear his name. He was staying with his father and stepmother in Odessa, Texas. I'd be meeting him at his family home, far away from the apartment he had shared with Michelle. I would be on his turf. I would listen to his story. But what I knew I wouldn't do was play by his rules. I'm Dr. Phil, and you're listening to Episode 2 of Twisted Love, Bringing a Murderer to Justice. My Bessie Stormburst low top and weekend sneakers empower my summer adventures. Now, I went to New York last week because I had to do a press tour, and I was prepared to embrace the summer season to its fullest, no matter what it threw my way weather-wise. And I'd been going from interview to interview, like seriously, 15, 20 during the day. And then I went to a dinner with clients. I knew that in the middle of that dinner, I had to do one more really key interview. And in order to do it, I had to leave the middle of that dinner and that noisy restaurant for about 10 or 15 minutes. And sure enough, I got to the door to step outside where it was quiet and it was raining cats and dogs. But I had on my Vessie Stormburst, so I was able to go through all of that water on the sidewalk, across the street, to get into my car so I could do the interview in the quiet. You want to stay prepared. Join us now and let us make this summer one for the books. Seize the sun-kissed days and thrilling escapades at Vessie.com mystery for shoes that masterfully combine waterproof protection with urban elegance. Start your journey with Vessi and get an automatic 15% off your first order at checkout. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. As soon as the plane touched down in Odessa, my news producer got a call from Mark. He wanted to back out. The man who had been so eager to share his story with me days ago was now getting cold feet. I'm not one to sugarcoat, and people know that about me. Was he scared of what I would think of him or what I might find out? At this point, we were driving through endless oil fields, If you ever watch Friday Night Lights, you'll know what I'm talking about. This town, Odessa, Texas, is where that story took place. So as we are in this car heading towards him after traveling to this remote location, he is saying, never mind. We ultimately reasoned with him. My producer later told me she was freaking out. This was her first big story on the road with me, and for a minute there, it looked like she had brought me for absolutely nothing. But we told him the truth, that I was trying to help find Michelle for her family's sake and for the sake of their son. If him speaking out could help at all and spread awareness surrounding her disappearance, it would be in his best interest to do it. Mark was still hesitant, 
but we got him to see the light. He at least agreed to meet us as planned at his parents' house. We were already boots on the ground, and I wasn't about to miss this chance. I felt in my bones that Mark knew more than he had initially let on, and that letting him off the hook now might mean that he would never tell the truth. He had said something else on that phone call I found interesting, and that would later prove to be the key moment when I knew for sure Mark was lying and had harmed Michelle. On the last episode, I told you that police found it highly suspicious that the hard drives from Mark's computers were missing, missing from his Houston apartment. He had removed them. Now, when my producer initially spoke to Mark, he claimed he had those hard drives and would show them to me as proof of his innocence, as proof that he wasn't hiding anything. But then, right before the interview, he called my producer again. He told her he wanted to tell her he could actually not show me the hard drives as he had promised. When she asked him why, he claimed, oops, he actually didn't have them. He had just simply forgotten that he had given them to a friend to get some photos off of them. She wanted to get him in front of me. We knew that if I could get in front of him, that I would get the truth out, whatever it might be, and that that truth would lead to helping find Michelle one way or another. So we did not push the issue that he had said one thing, then said another, and was changing the game. Was this a red flag to us? Absolutely. Did it create suspicion on my part? No, it just amplified suspicion on my part because I was already suspicious of this man. But we did discuss it in the car. Why had Mark claimed he would show me the hard drives and then claim he didn't have them? In fact, it was his idea at first. He offered it up. We had not asked about the hard drives. This was something he volunteered. We knew they were missing, and I certainly was going to ask about them, but he offered them up before we ever had a chance to. And now, he says he had forgotten that he had given them to a friend. How convenient. Why was he bringing this up now? Because he knew he was getting ready to be right in front of me, and I was going to ask him to make good on that commitment. I hadn't even met this guy yet, and he was already trying to change his story. It was clear to me we were in for an interesting ride. And like I said, Michelle had been missing for more than a week. If she was alive but in danger, time was of the essence. The clock was ticking. The question in my mind was, would we be able to help find her based on something he would say during this time we were getting ready to have together? One of the things that I know about liars is they often answer questions that are not asked. Liars get nervous. Liars' minds start racing. Liars' minds start trying to anticipate what they think you might be curious about, and they seek your approval. And so they start trying to think, okay, here's what would make him happy. Here's what would make him like me. Here's what would make him believe me. The police are suspicious of these hard drives. If I can tell Dr. Phil that I have them, that might defuse his suspicions of me, at least for a portion of the interview. And by the time I have to figure out a way to tell him that I don't actually have them, I will have gotten through a certain portion of the interview, and maybe by that time I will have won him over. Maybe by that time I will have convinced him that I'm a good guy. Is that what he was thinking? Because he knew I was going to ask. So he just brought it up and says, hey, I've got the hard drives. I'll show them to you. So his hope is that I'm thinking, well, hey, 
you know, clearly he's being forthcoming. He's offering this up to us. They were wrong to be suspicious. Now, I've covered cases and interviewed families of both missing adults and children. And of course, when a child goes missing, a search often starts immediately. In this type of adult missing case, such as Michelle, there are those who will say the person left of their own accord. And that's what Mark was saying here. He didn't say he was surprised that she was missing, that Michelle had left without a trace, and that he hadn't seen or heard from her was, according to him, because she just left. But her family just knew better than that. They knew something was wrong, and they feared the absolute worst. Now, statistically, data-wise, It's known that usually the first person investigators suspect is the spouse, right? We all know that. In fact, 95% of the time, if a spouse goes missing, you need to look real hard at their mate because they're the ones with the opportunity. They're often the ones with the motive. And when the dust all settles, despite their pleas, When they stand in front of the cameras, despite their passing out the pamphlets, despite their crying in front of the crowds, they're often behind the whole thing. Now, in this case, they weren't spouses. In this case, Mark and Michelle were co-parenting. They lived together. But still, it's no surprise that he was under suspicion because they were in a relationship They were each other's significant other, whatever label you wanted to put on it. As soon as Mark was recommitted to the interview, my crew and I didn't waste any time. We did not want to give him a chance to waffle again. We were soon at Mark's family's modest one-level family home. I was about to meet the man at the center of this mystery. But nothing and I mean nothing could have prepared me for what was about to unfold. The moment I met Mark, I began sizing him up. He was pleasant, friendly, welcoming. He just seemed very accommodating, as though I was coming over for dinner. But he seemed just a bit off. Something wasn't clicking. Something wasn't right. Now, granted, these were trying circumstances, and you would expect that he would be ill at ease. You would expect that his significant other's missing, and he's going to be anxious. He knows that people are at least looking in his direction. But it was more than that. He was running a lot of agendas in his head at one time. It was almost like he was listening to two radio stations at the same time. You know, think about that. You've got a radio on each shoulder, they're tuned to different stations, and they're both playing. He was there, but he wasn't. He was paying attention, but he was highly distracted. I immediately understood why people who knew Michelle well claimed that these two were an odd pair. Now, my son Jay was actually with us. He was on his way to a work meeting, and so we were actually traveling together. Now, two other producers and a cameraman were also there. I kind of polled the group. They all found him, well, creepy and strange. He seemed like a wallflower, the type of guy who might live in his mother's basement. My producer says he gave her a, quote, Norman Bates kind of vibe. Now, these were the observations of just regular people. I talked to Jay after we had interacted informally with him as we were getting ready to sit down. And Jay and I have worked together a lot. I trust his instincts. He looked at me and said, Dad, this guy's all wrong. He's just all wrong. And if it's okay with you, I'm going to stand just out of frame and keep a really close eye on this guy. Now, my son Jay's highly trained in the martial arts, and I took a little comfort 
I found it a little easier knowing that he was just right there in case things went south. Who knows what this guy's going to do? Because if he's guilty, he's desperate, and I'm getting ready to push his buttons, and I'm going to push him hard. But what I noticed right off the bat, from a professional standpoint, was he was straight up lying. And he had something to hide. He didn't seem worried about Michelle at all. Over my years of doing this, I've spoken with countless loved ones of the missing, and they are distraught. They help organize search parties. They paper the streets with missing persons posters. And as I said, sometimes the people that are doing that are the perpetrators. But most of the people that are doing this are heartbroken. They're desperate. These are the people that they've invested in, the people that they love. And if they're not the perpetrators, they are heartbroken. That's not Mark Castellano. He didn't have the right vibe here. He didn't have the right emotions. And he didn't have the right agenda. His focus was not on, we've got to find her. There was no urgency. There was no desperation. It wasn't like, look, a week has gone by. Thank you for using your platform. Thank you for drawing attention to this. Let's do anything and everything we can. I will scream from the rooftops if necessary. And typically, that's where people are at this point. Their heads are spinning with the horrific thoughts of what might have happened or what might be currently happening to their missing person. Their worry is palpable, but not this guy. He didn't just seem cool. He seemed cold, detached, unplugged. Before the cameras began rolling, the crew was getting ready for the interview to begin. They were checking the lights and miking up Mark. I try to stay as quiet and neutral as possible in these situations. I didn't want anything to unfold or scare Mark. It was just too soon. I saw Mark's stepmother pull my producer aside. I couldn't hear what they were saying, but she looked torn. She looked incredibly upset. But she didn't seem to want to stop what was about to happen from happening. Sometimes family members can be very protective. Sometimes they're very concerned about what a loved one is getting ready to expose themselves to. And she seemed very upset. But like I say, it wasn't that she was being protective or wanting to derail. My producer later told me the woman had said she loved Mark like her own son. She had helped raise him, but that she was scared. She said she couldn't imagine him being capable of hurting anyone and mentioned how much he loved his young son. But she said she didn't know if this interview was a good idea for him because she was starting to worry despite hating herself for it. What if he had done this? She said she knew his story and actions didn't add up. It was a heartbreaking moment where a woman had to make a decision. She knew deep down the man she saw as her son had done something. Something that wasn't right, and she knew he was about to sit down across from someone who she felt very strongly could figure it out. She didn't really want to know the truth. She needed to know the truth, but it scared her. She was afraid of the truth, but knew that it needed to come out. Her instinct was to protect him, but I believe there was a part of her that wanted to do what was right, and if he had done something, she knew it had to come out. She said he wanted to do the interview, and she wasn't going to stand in his way, but as his mother, she seemed to have the instinct that once we sat down face to face, it would be the beginning of the end for Mark Castellano. Now, for a maternal figure to even question if their son might be a killer, well, that's a massive red flag to me right there. 
Because let's face it, out of everybody in that house, out of everybody in that room, the person that knows Mark Castellano the best is this woman, Mark's stepmother. And she was admitting that even she, someone who was supposed to be completely on his side, the person that knew him the best, had to admit that it was a possibility that Mark could have blood on his hands. Now, in the bubble over my head, I'm taking all of this in. I try to be very situationally aware. So I'm sitting there thinking, look, I'm going to try to get to the bottom of this. But she started learning about this man a long time before I ever even knew he existed. She has data I will never have access to. She has experiences I will never have access to. She has information, both contemporary and historical, that I will never have access to. And she's scared. She wants him to be innocent more than anybody in the house. Yet she is afraid that he may have blood on his hands. That registers with me in a big way. As we sat down to begin, I wondered if I was sitting down in front of somebody that was just odd, somebody that just didn't have good social skills, somebody that was just a little in shock and overwhelmed and came across as awkward, or if I was, in fact, inches away from a stone-cold killer. As we play parts of this interview, I urge you to use your instincts. I urge you to listen, to use your judgment, and ask yourself as you listen, what do you make of this guy? And your best yardstick is, how would you be acting? How would you be reacting? How would you be feeling if you were in a similar situation? If someone you loved had gone missing, would you answer the same or differently? Would you react the same or differently, feel the same or differently from what you hear from Mark Castellano? Let's talk about the night she disappeared. Okay. You had a fight. Yes, sir. And was this a physical fight or an argument or both? Basically, I come home, um, she's in her room. The first thing she does is start yelling at me that Caden has made a big mess. He was running wild. Uh, about this point, I start arguing. You know, you've been asleep. You know, what do you want? You take enough Xanax so you can't hear him. You know, and we start fighting. Caden is at this point in his room hiding. She walks up to me, and she gives me this kind of sucker punch while I'm on the floor. I mean, it, she, she hits me all the time, and I don't retaliate. But she hit me and said, and clean it up right, expletive, expletive and she goes in and slams the door. We can start dissecting this guy right from here, right from the get-go. What's he doing? He's smearing her name. He seemed more angry than worried that the mother of his child is missing. He's alluding to her abusing Xanax, having a tyrannical temper, and he's claiming that she regularly physically abused him. Now, let's assume that's all true. Why does he feel the need to tell me that? We're here, supposedly... To help find her. We're here because he says, I want to clear my name so I can be excluded, so people stop wasting resources looking at me, so they can spend all of that time looking for who really did this. If his main agenda here is let's find the mother of my child, let's find the woman that admittedly I'm still in love with, admittedly that I wanted to get back into my life. Why does he feel the need to derogate her from the jump? Why does he feel the need to do that with me? It's interesting that he's not trying to paint a picture of a harmonious household with two happy co-parents. He's admitting there's strife there, even though he's putting the blame entirely on her, making her out to be a bad mom who would rather sleep and make him clean up a mess and then yell and scream at him. Now, I'm not saying a man can't be abused in a relationship because they absolutely can, but I inherently felt like he was going overboard with his claims, and again, 
Why now? If you're sitting down with me, who has clearly a bully pulpit, who clearly has the biggest platform from which to tell this story, would you open with saying, I just want to be sure everybody knows the negatives about this woman we're looking for. It just didn't add up. In fact, I asked him immediately where Michelle had hit him. He hesitated. He hesitated as though he had to think of an answer rather than knowing the answer off the top of his head. Now, let me talk about that for a second. When you ask somebody a question to which there is a factual answer, they don't have to screen possible responses. They just give you the answer. If I ask you, were you at 3rd and Elm last night at 10? If you're telling the truth, you're going to answer either you were or you weren't, yes or no. If you were, but you don't want to admit that you were, you have to run some possibilities through your mind. Before I say no, could possibly somebody have seen me? So therefore, I want to say yes, but have an excuse. If I say no and somebody saw me, then I'm going to be caught in a lie. So you're having this dialogue with yourself. But if you have nothing to hide, you don't need to have that dialogue. So you answer promptly, quickly, without delay. So I say, tell me where Michelle had hit you. He hesitated. Why is he hesitating? Is he thinking, is he going to want to see a mark? Is there going to be some way to tell whether or not I've been hit or not? I don't know what he's thinking, but he's thinking of something that he shouldn't need to be thinking about if he's going to tell me the truth. That tells me straight up he's not being forthcoming. Now, I mentioned up front that he's going out of his way to make sure that I know she's a bad person, someone with volatile emotions, very reactive. She curses, loses her temper, hits him. Now, in cases like this, when a victim or a potential victim isn't there to defend themselves, the guilty party will use them as a scapegoat and as a way to deflect blame. Victim shaming. This is evident, for example, if you reference the trial of the century, when O.J. Simpson was on trial for the murder of Nicole Simpson and Ron Goldman. In subsequent interviews, O.J. said he was angry at Nicole even after her death for what she had put him through during their divorce. This also curries favor because it's poor Mark, right? We're supposed to feel sorry for him. Mark went on to tell me the last interaction he had with her was when she fought and socked him. After hitting him, Mark claimed that she went into the bedroom, slammed the door, and that was the last time he saw her. It was time to get into the details that just plain did not make sense. It was time to hold his feet to the fire. One of the main questions that stumped Michelle's family and myself was if she had left of her own accord, why would she have set out on foot when she had a perfectly good car? Now, I could connect the dots if she had gone outside for a walk to cool down after such a heated argument, only to return shortly thereafter. But to leave on foot and just keep going when you have a car in a big city? Remember, we're talking Houston here. It just doesn't make any sense. Mark had what he thought was a valid response, that Michelle was usually carrying narcotics and that she most likely had had someone pick her up so that she wouldn't be stopped driving under the influence. Once again, he's throwing her under the bus. We get into a he said, she said here. Mark was determined to convey that she was taking some form or forms of drugs, while her family is adamant that she was clean. I pointed out to him that that answer didn't make sense because her phone had been off since that night. So how would she be able to communicate with anyone to come get her? Well, he had an answer for this one too. Michelle had a bag of cell phones and could have used any of her other phones to make a call to get away. Now, I was born at night, but it wasn't last night. 
Still, we weren't far enough down the path for me to begin confronting him on every point. He was already giving what I thought were murky explanations at best. I wanted to give him enough rope to hang himself. Now, when I talk to a suspect, I'm not just taking in their words. Their tone, how they move, where their focus of vision travels. Over time, you learn that body language tells as much of the story, sometimes even more, than the words themselves. For example, when I first met him, I noticed during the course of the interview, Mark's eyes were constantly shifting. But yet, he also seemed eerily calm, but in a cold, detached sort of way. The most bizarre thing I noticed was that he seemed to have a little smile on his face throughout our discussion. It looked like a self-satisfied smirk that seemed to radiate, I know something you don't know, the cat that ate the canary. Remember the term duping delight. You have to take all of this in because you look at clusters and the devil is in the details. Often a liar will exaggerate details or provide an excess of information. They think that makes their story more credible. You notice I mentioned in the very beginning, they start answering questions that aren't asked. If you're talking about peripheral details, it's like filibustering. I'm going to talk a lot about things that don't matter because it keeps me from having to talk about things that do matter. I'm killing time and I'm buying time. They think it makes their story more credible when in reality it gives the other person the opportunity to just poke holes in their story. And there are micro expressions. You'll often see someone saying something yes and nodding their head no. They'll say, I don't know where she is, but their head's nodding yes while they're saying no. Timing of responses to questions is often delayed, as I said, and I could see the gears turning in his head because he's screening responses. So I'm looking at all of these things. I'm seeing this smirk on his face. It's this delight at duping someone, duping me. He's sitting there thinking, I know something you don't know, and I haven't told you, so I've got power over you. I know what you don't, and he takes delight in that. He's talking about things that are assassinating her character. He's derogating her, putting her down when she can't be there to defend herself. I catch him screening responses, but every once in a while you see his anger flash through. Expressions of annoyance and anger when I won't let a point go by. And as I saw them, I could perceive how undeniably hostile he was towards this missing woman. How else could you be so derogating, so assassinating of her character, and still be concerned about what might be happening to her? I did want to give him a chance to defend himself against what the media and police had deemed his suspicious behavior. I started with the bleach. There had been reports that he had doused his apartment with the cleaning agent after Michelle's disappearance. Obviously, most equate bleach with a blood cleanup. So why, Mark, why was there bleach in the apartment? Well, he answered this with a small smile and briefly closed his eyes. Another sign of potential deception. That was really blown out of proportion. There are two areas where I had been cleaning up before by the computer desk that we used that Walmart off-brand carpet cleaner and it bleached the carpet, two stains. They had been there for months. Mark grinned and said he told police to please go over the apartment with a fine-tooth comb. Were those the words of a truly innocent man or an arrogant and overly confident criminal? His demeanor suggested he thought he was the smartest guy in the room. He thought he could outwit us all, me included. The first page of a book never tells the full story. 
And those news alerts and headlines, like the ones we get on our phones, don't even scratch the surface of what the story is really all about. Stories are like people, multi-layered and complex. It takes some digging to find the truth, but when we find it, it can change our world. We like to dig. The news on Merritt Street, essential television. Okay, so far he says the bleach stains were from an old cleaning mishap, not an attempt to cover up DNA from a possible crime. An odd coincidence to be sure, but come on, not entirely out of the realm of possibility, right? I mean, bleach is a common cleaner in most houses. But then there was the business about his eight-hour road trip. At 11 p.m. the night Michelle, in Mark's words, stormed out, he felt it necessary to take their son Caden to his family's home in Odessa. That meant he drove all night long with his young son. He claimed it was because he needed help to take care of Caden. His attempt to rationalize this move was making my meter skyrocket. What innocent person hits the road with their child in tow, drives to a destination eight hours away, and then turns around and practically drives right back home? This is just not rational behavior. This just doesn't make sense. If she's missing, you wouldn't do it. If she has stormed out and you have any hope of reconciliation— Or if she stormed out and you're afraid that she's going to accidentally get into harm's way, there are a thousand reasons you would stay put. So if he had to get the boy to his parents' house, then why turn around and come back home? Well, he said it was so he could get to the apartment before she returned. But why? It sounded to me like someone was eager to get their child out of the way so they would have the time and the freedom to return home and begin a cleanup and a cover-up. That, to me, seemed like the more rational explanation. It didn't help matters that people had seen him moving blankets and boxes into her car in the days following her disappearance. Now, he says this was to get her things out of his apartment. You could also argue it was to get rid of more evidence and to completely rid his apartment of any trace of the woman he had once loved. It was obvious to me through his body language and through his expressions that he was harboring extreme resentment towards this woman, the mother of his child. Take a listen to how he describes her relationship dynamic. She basically owns me in a a lot of ways, and I admit that. I I cave to Michelle nine-tenths of the time. That's a telling statement. He's saying he felt powerless most likely emasculated by this relationship that she controlled him. Let's not forget, this was an unconventional relationship. There didn't seem to be any lingering romantic feelings on her part. She lived there ostensibly only for financial reasons. Now, Mark was alleging that they were consistently shouting at each other, that she was actually attacking and hitting him. Now, of course... Your story goes a whole lot better when you're the only one telling it, and I was only hearing his side. But I don't doubt that there was contention between these two. I don't see him as the totally innocent party, even in the day-to-day dynamics of this relationship. I've talked about this before, this idea of crossing the line. Even if there hadn't been alleged physical violence, their tumultuous relationship was already causing harm For both of them, this was like a boiler just waiting to explode. And the problem is, this was happening in front of children. And children are very keen to this. They're extremely perceptive, even from a very early age. You have to think about how their three-year-old son was impacted by this kind of walking on eggshells home life with two unhappy parents who aren't even in a relationship. It's an emotionally barren environment. What kind of example was that setting? Now, during this, I'm also asking myself, does this guy really think he's helping his case? He was laying a lot of eyebrow-raising behavior out on the table. This was a living situation from hell, and it was only escalating. He readily admitted that to me. 
He said that was why he split with her soon after the birth of their son. The, the fighting, the, the arguing just got out of hand to the point to where I knew I was going to do something to her or she was going to do something to me. So Mark was acknowledging that they were poisoning each other with their mutual disdain. When I pushed him for further details on their problems, he gave me an answer. Well, it just sent chills up my spine. There was one time I choked her. Were you choking her to the point of unconsciousness? She and I were fighting. She was punching me, you know, fingernails, and I was pushing her off, and she kept swinging. And uh, I, I grabbed her and choked her and threw her on the ground, and once she hit the ground, I let go. I made every effort to keep my composure to make sure he would keep talking. You never, ever, in interrogation, and that's what I decided this was turning into, you never, ever take the first admission. I promise you, if they make an admission of some kind of wrongdoing, there's more to come. He was admitting without any apologies or seemingly fear of how he would appear that he had caused bodily harm to a woman who had suddenly vanished into thin air. That's a pretty bold move. Again, it was interesting to note that he seemed intent on still placing all the blame on her. He claimed he choked her in self-defense and threw her on the ground because he feared for his safety. In his mind, he was the responsible one while he accused her of being unhealthy, living on caffeine and nicotine, and abusing drugs such as Xanax. So far, he had an answer for everything. Now, my experience has taught me that when you're dealing with someone who is a pathological liar or a person in the midst of weaving elaborate lies, calling them out on every single untruth doesn't necessarily do any good. They'll just get defensive or concoct even more lies to muddle the truth and make themselves look better. What I did know is this is extremely narcissistic on his part. He's not reading the room. He's not reading the room at all. Think about it. She's missing. Everyone but him is referring to her as missing. He says she stormed off. Everyone else says she's missing. He's not reading the room when he says, I have choked this woman out. I've thrown her to the ground. He is describing exactly the kinds of behaviors that would lead up to someone being incapacitated, someone being killed. And there was something else that he couldn't get away with lying to me about. Remember those hard drives the ones police had noticed were missing from computers in the apartment? Of course, the fact they were missing seemed significant. Mark had promised to show them to me. Now, why? Well, to prove that there was nothing on them that he was trying to hide. But as I said, when we had landed in Odessa, Mark told my news producer that he forgot... He didn't have the hard drives in his possession to show us. He had given them to a friend. Now, what happens from this point forward and the way it actually unfolds, minute to minute, second to second, is going to prove critical. Mark was careful and had an answer for everything up until this point. Everything I'd ask him... He had an explanation, he had a spin, he had a deflection. But at this point, he had so many balls in the air, he overlooked a crucial detail. He wasn't aware of how involved I am in preparing for a story. He must not have realized that when he told my producer that he would show me the hard drives, and then when he called her and said he could not, that they in fact were with a friend, that both times she had immediately relayed those updates to me. He must have thought she would have just made a note, maybe not have involved me in the minutia. What he didn't know 
is that I'm involved in every detail of every interview I do. Not knowing that about me was his mistake. Now, of course, I plan to ask him why he had volunteered, why he had offered to show me the hard drives. And now, when I had showed up at the home in Odessa and we were face-to-face, he was going to conveniently tell me they were with a friend. But I had an instinct about this. Instead of asking him, why did you tell us you had them, and now you're telling us you don't, I planned to ask it in pieces. I stated, okay, you said you would show me the hard drive. And then I just sat in silence, letting the pregnant pause hang in the air as though I were expecting him to hand me the hard drive. Of course, I knew he had already told my producer that he didn't have the hard drive there. He had now made up a new excuse that they were with a friend, but I didn't say that. I just let the pregnant pause hang in the air. And what he said was beyond damning. Well, you said you would show them to me when yes, I came Yes, yeah, I have the drives. Do you have them here? Yes. Can we, can we look at them? Yeah, I'll bring them to you. One yeah, second. So during that exchange, at this point in the interview, Mark got up from his seat, went down the hallway, and rounded the corner. He was acting like he was going to go fetch those hard drives from another room. The hard drives he had already admitted he knew he was not going to show me because he had said they were not at that address. They were not at that house. Of the many lies I was sure he had already told me, this was one that I knew I could nail him on in real time. Now, what you didn't see behind the scenes was what Mark did when he got up from his chair. As I said, he walked through the open living room, approached the hallway facing away from myself and the cameras. He thought he was heading into the corner of the house, a corner of the house where he'd be alone, where he could presumably pretend to look for the hard drives and then come out and say, oh, I forgot, I gave them to a friend. But who he did not expect to see when he rounded the corner was my producer, the one he had told the hard drives were not at this house. He had to stop short because she was sitting in a chair in the hallway blocking his path. Now, when we are shooting an interview in someone's home, we don't have access to our big stage, our fancy control room. We have to make do with whatever circumstances we're given. Now, obviously my producer needed to hear the interview, but you don't want to see that person in the shot. The only place she could sit and hear what was unfolding without being seen on camera was behind the wall that separated the living room from the hallway. The crew had pulled a wooden box there for her to sit on. Problem solved. But when Mark rounded the corner, he had a cadence in his mind. He expected, okay, I've got another 20 or 30 feet I can go. I'll work this out in my mind. When I get there, I'll be able to stop. That was his rhythm. He'll turn around, come back, work it out in his mind. But he unexpectedly came face to face with her, abruptly having to stop. They made eye contact. In that moment, he knew and she knew that he had already told her he did not have those drives. And yet he still got up from his chair and pretended to go get the hard drives for me. When he knew the entire time, when he got up from that chair, when he took the first step, the second step, the third step, when he turned his back to me and walked away, he knew He was going to an imaginary location to pick up imaginary drives. He knew they were not there. This moment was the beginning of his unraveling. He never recovered. 
by asking him about the hard drives as if I didn't know I had given him just enough rope to hang himself. Mark quickly returned to a seat across from me, and at this point, he goes into his story, the same one he had told when we were in the car, that a friend actually still has the hard drives and was helping him copy them and was still in the process of doing that. You said you were going to show those to us, and you got up and walked to the door and then said, oh, that's right, they're not here. But not 15 minutes before we got here, you told my producer they weren't here. You already knew they weren't here when you got up to go get them. My mind is scatterbrained right now. I mean, I, I forgot. Yes, I could see why he might be feeling scatterbrained. Like Mark Twain said, when you tell the truth, you don't have to remember anything. I believed at this point that he was concocting so many lies that he was having a difficult time keeping track of what he had said and when. He didn't have time to defend himself in any other way to me than to justify his misstep by saying, I'm just scatterbrained right now. Not much of a defense. To my way of thinking, he had not acted scattered at all in the days after her disappearance. On the contrary, he had been methodical. He didn't act scattered when he got up out of that chair. He got up purposely. He said, yes, I'll get them. He walked with purpose. He moved with purpose until he was abruptly interrupted. And that's when he started to unravel. Everything had been methodical. Removing the hard drives, driving his son to stay with relatives, the allegations of him possibly bleaching the apartment. These are moves made by someone who is calculated until they're caught in a lie they don't have an explanation for. After that, we took a short break to powwow outside. She told me when he rounded that corner, he had a look on his face that she says she will never forget. When he realized he had been caught, he didn't look scared, surprised, or panicked. He stopped short to stop from running into her, and he just slowly smiled. A smile that she said just gave her a chill down her spine and a feeling of fear. That this was not a normal person we're dealing with here. In fact, she felt like you know what? We may have been in a remote house, pretty much alone, with a killer. Even so, even knowing that that smile might well have been, you know what? The die is cast. I'm caught. I still tried to strike a balance of delving deeper into his explanations that didn't make any sense while also giving him a platform to let himself be heard. But from where I stood, things were not looking good for him. I noticed throughout our discussion, he would slip up and mention her in the past tense. I mean, her face, her arms, it was like a leper. She had all these little spots that would appear, they wouldn't heal. And she was taking, I know she was taking more Adderall to lose weight, but she kept gaining it. And she wouldn't. She was starting to drink. She had never drank before, ever. So you say she doesn't look at all like the pictures that are in the media because they're very attractive, healthy-looking young woman. She would have to spend a ton of time in the morning getting her makeup on. So he's talking about the mother of his child who's had no cell phone or credit card usage in over a week, hasn't reached out to try to see or speak to her son, and he's speaking of her as though she's already deceased. As I said to him, even if she was involved with drugs or whatever else he was alleging, to not reach out to her child, whom everyone, even him, agrees she adored, was just bizarre. The main question I needed to know, had to know, was that if Mark was, as he was still trying to put forth, the main question that I wanted him to speak to the main question I wanted to hear him address was that if he was, as he was still trying to maintain, innocent, where was Michelle? If not him, who could have done what to her? My thinking was, keep him talking, because based on results, when he's talking, he's disclosing. 
way more than he thinks he is. But as I continue, it's time to ask him some straight-up, on-the-nose questions. What do you think happened to her? I think her body can't handle what she's doing. I have a little boy waking up asking me where his mom is at night. I pray to God that she can come out of this. I don't know exactly where she is. Did you do anything to her that would be considered foul play or criminal? No, no. Did you kill her? No, sir. If she is watching this right now, let's she say can she's come home. Uh, and what do you she, say to her? She, we can fix this. We can fix to where she gets help. He told me he was hurting inside, that he would rather harm himself than anyone else. I noted that he sniffled, but did not shed a single tear. I felt like he had lied to my face and tried to get away with his deceit. I had given him every chance to come clean. I told him, you know, no one gets away with this type thing. If you know more, then it's in the best interest of you and your son to put this mystery to rest. The not knowing is killing her family. He continued to proclaim his innocence, and yet I instinctively felt this wasn't the end of the story. I felt this was actually the tip of the iceberg when it came to Mark Castellano and what he was capable of. Before we left, Mark even agreed to show me the inside of his car. We opened the trunk and looked inside. There was nothing out of place. Again, Mark was trying to play the part of a man who had nothing to hide. But an eerie feeling hung in the air. As I searched around that car, a car that looked normal, I stood there wondering if Michelle's body had been in it just days before. We would leave Odessa with a strong feeling that Mark Castellano had killed Michelle Warner. In the car, we all agreed that he knew more than he was saying. We agreed that he had been caught in bald-faced lies. And we agreed he was teetering on the edge of giving it up. He was on the brink of something. When I told him, if you want to help your son, do the right thing now. He didn't know how to wrap his head around that. I knew that was as far as he could be pushed in the moment without becoming so defensive that he would shut down. I had to play this by ear. One thing I've learned is nobody, nobody confesses in a crowd. Nobody confesses in a group. And there were a lot of people in that house at that moment. I had looked him in the eye, and I had the feeling that he knew I knew. Mark was right there, but I also knew he wasn't going to admit it right then. Knowing how to remain the good guy in his eyes, the place where he would feel safe to bring the truth, to be the person who would give him a chance and in a strange way make him feel that he wouldn't be judged was important. One of the important parts of interrogating someone is you sometimes have to rationalize and trivialize what they've done in their eyes as though, hey, I understand things happen. I mean, I know you didn't mean it. I understand that things sometimes just get out of hand, but help me help you here. I knew I had pushed him to the edge and he was about to tumble over. The interview part was done. The face-to-face part was done, but this story was far from over. I had left Mark feeling very vulnerable. When I walked in that house, I think he thought he was the smartest person in the room. I think he thought he was in control. When I left... 
I think he felt very vulnerable. I think he felt very unraveled. I think he felt very out of control. And he knew it was all on tape. Was I right? All I can tell you is this would not be the last time we would hear from Mark Castellano. Michelle's body was about to be found, and somehow we ended up involved in this case one step ahead of the police. That's what's next on Twisted Love, bringing a murderer to justice. I'm Dr. Phil, and you're listening to Murder and Mystery, analysis by Dr. Phil.